In the name of God, most merciful, ever merciful, and may God's peace and blessings be upon his holy prophet Muhammad and the purified members of his household and progeny. Brothers, sisters, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. So, as it was uh, just mentioned, we are now at the last lesson in the series on general prophethood. Uh, and this lesson is supposed to wrap up the this series, and then this will be followed by uh, a series of lessons that have to do with specific prophethood related to our prophet, Prophet Muhammad sallallahu and then followed by a series of five lessons that have to do with the extension of prophethood, which is imamah. Uh, and with that, we will have, inshallah, covered all of volume two. So we are exactly at the midpoint in volume two once we finish this lesson, inshallah. It's, again, it's from, uh, we're following the uh, course of the book, right? Yeah, so this is the book of Durus al Aqid al-Islamiyya, uh, or Theological Instructions by Sheikh Muhammad Taqib al-Sbah al-Yazdi. So we are at lesson 30 in this lesson. So this lesson is entitled, The Prophet, The People and the Prophets. The general overview of the lesson, <clears throat> there's an introduction, and we'll go through the points of the introduction, and then the main point of this lesson has to do with the interactions of people with their prophets. So on the side of the people mostly, but there will be a little bit on the side of, pro of the prophets as well. And then uh, the, pro the, the author spends a little bit of time uh, talking about this theme or the topic of what we can call uh, the trends, divine trends or divine uh, patterns or divine laws that have to do with societies in general and how they interact with their prophets. Okay, and so we can say a couple of things once we reach that. So here we translated that section as divine trends in managing nations. Okay. So first of all, <clears throat> the introduction. Um, the, I think, generally speaking, if we go through the Holy Quran, for instance, we see that it gives a lot of importance to this topic of the relationship between people and the prophets. So already this is an indication that this is an important topic. The Holy Quran does not just tell us, you know, here's what happened in the life of the prophet. It spends a lot of time, and inshallah we're gonna see this today, it spends a lot of time on how people reacted, how people dealt with the prophets that were sent to them and the different reactions and then, depending on the path that they chose, what happened to those nations? What happened to those people? So that in itself becomes an important topic. And when we look at the Holy Quran, we see that there's a few things. This, this topic can be looked at from a few angles. The first angle is the people themselves. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sends a prophet, sends a messenger to a group of people. The whole Qur'an spends time explaining to us how the people received that prophet, how the people interacted, what did they do amongst themselves, how did they respond to the prophet who is claiming to be sent from God. So that's one angle. A second angle is, and it's a very important one, 
The Holy Quran explains to us in some cases in summary and in some cases in detail. It explains to us from the angle of the prophets, what did they do? So we are told in these verses, we are told in these verses, first of all, what the prophets were trying to preach, what they were trying to teach their people. But it also gives us the means that they were using, the strategies that they were using. So when they came to their people, you see every prophet customized the message to the context in which they were and the message that they were trying to teach, depending on their own status, depending on their own people, and they knew their people. You see that every prophet adopts a different strategy, a different methodology, a different approach. So there's a lot to be learned from that. When you're trying to communicate a message, be aware of that context. And then the Holy Quran also explains to us what the prophets did when they kept being confronted and they were being opposed and their message was being rejected. They did not give up. They stayed strong and steadfast and patient. And in a lot of cases, we noticed that they were, you know, uh, extremely compassionate and merciful. And uh, it's not just a matter of resilience and strength. They, the manner in which they spoke to their people shows that they had mercy towards them. They had compassion, even though their people were rejecting them and insulting them and creating all sorts of fabrications and lies about them. They remained on the same path and they did not change in that manner. They just kept going with their message in the same manner. And then, so those are two angles. And then the third angle is the one that we're going to call the divine trends. And we may call them, you know, by different names. It's difficult to translate the, the Sunan, as the Holy Quran refers to it. This Sunnah can be tradition, can be a pattern, can be a model, can be a law, it could be a trend. So basically, we're not saying that this is something of a, you know, a universal law. We don't want to go that far, but we can say Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala makes a point to say there are patterns that you're going to recognize in history and they're going to repeat themselves. Okay, so this is what we're referring to as trends. And in this case, the trends we're talking about, let's call them social and historical trends. So they could they they address or they have to do with nations, so they're social, and they happen over time and they seem to repeat themselves over time. So they happen historically. Okay? So we're gonna get back to that point, inshallah. The next point here is that this topic, generally speaking, if you go back to the books of Kalam, traditional books that have to do with theology, this is not something that used to be addressed as a as a standalone topic. We don't really have any of the big, you know, scholars of Kalam who have dedicated a section or a chapter to talking about the interaction between the people and the prophets and what this means and from an analytical point of view to try to extract these divine trends. This was not really done. That said, uh, the topic itself is important from already everything that we mentioned. So it allows us, here's where the, prophet, the, the author uh, tries to sell this point as being very important, and that's why he's putting it here, and I completely agree with him. First of all, it's important because it, it is directly related to the topic of prophethood. So even though it was not, it is not customarily studied under prophethood, it's more studied in Quranic commentary, uh, it is directly related to prophethood. And so understanding it allows us to understand all sorts of subtopics related to prophets 
and prophethood in general. So this is the proper place to study it. Either we study it, study it at the beginning of prophethood or at the end like we're doing here. So from a, let's say, theoretical point of view, from a knowledge perspective, it's very important. It allows us to understand prophethood a lot more fully. And it's something that's going to be recurrent. So it is definitely part of general prophethood. You're going to see it in whether you study Prophet Nuh or Prophet Yusuf or Prophet, uh, you know, Suleiman or Dawood or the Holy Prophet We're going to see that this is something that repeats itself. So this is a proper place to study it. That's one. And perhaps even more important than this, so beyond the theoretical component, the lessons that we extract from this topic are very important. They have a direct application for us. If we discover the manner in which the people interacted with prophets, or to put it more generally, how people received or interacted with the truth once it was revealed to them, then this becomes a lesson for us. How are we supposed to deal with the truth? And making sure that we're not falling in the same patterns and the same mistakes. And we're going to see there are kind of categories that we're, we can lump a lot of the issues in. We're going to call them factors here that led to this objection or opposition or rejection of prophethood or the truth in general. And we'll, we'll add a little bit more to that. So there's a theoretical component and there's definitely a practical you know, application uh, that we can extract from all of this to apply in our lives. So the lessons learned have to have a direct application, a practical application in our lives. So this is for the introduction. So the first part of the lesson, as we said, is how did people react to the prophets when the prophets were sent to them? If we go back to the Holy Qur'an, and you're going to see in this lesson, inshallah, we're going to spend a little bit more time going through verses of the Qur'an. Uh, the Holy Qur'an tells us that the prophets were sent with today, and as we said initially in these lessons, we called it a religion. So one component, one set of their teachings have to do with beliefs. So they were telling people, for instance, you only have to believe in a true God. You cannot make up your own gods. You cannot make up your own idols. Even though they are symbolic and intermediaries between you and the, the one God, you cannot do that. If you worship, your worship has to be based on truth, not imagined entities and so on and so forth. And every other belief article that stems from that. So that's part of what they were teaching to their people. A second part, we can just summarize it under the heading of actions. So their values, their set of values, which today we call morals or potentially ethics, moral philosophy or ethics. These are values on which you're supposed to build your life. And in addition to those, there are the laws, which today we would call fiqh. Okay, so there's a code of law, but there's also a moral philosophy that is being taught by the prophets. So they're coming and telling people, this is what you believe in, and based on this belief, this is how you're supposed to live your lives. And so I'm not going to go through a discussion of this. I think it's clear enough. Make it bigger, sorry. So we have the set of beliefs and we have the actions. So the actions here are examples of them. You have to live a just life. You have to be just with yourself and you have to have justice at the social level, at the collective level as well. 
a nation cannot attack another nation, you know, or and so on and so forth. Uh, notions and, and concepts and values like charity, like compassion, like self-purification. These became the general teachings of prophets. How were these received by the people? Generally speaking, two big reactions. We can put them in two big reactions. The first one, the first reaction, is opposition, rejection, disbelief in whatever they were sent with. Here we have to add, because that the Holy Quran insists on this again and again. It doesn't just say the people rejected the prophets. They did. But it doesn't present it that way. It always put, puts a lot more responsibility, accountability, blame on those people that we're going to refer to as the elites. <coughs> the people who hold the power in a society. The Holy Quran uses different words, different terms. In some verses, it says, for instance, al-mutrafin. In other verses, in a lot of verses, it talks about al-mala'. Mala' are the people who are around the kings, around the rulers, the elites, the people who hold the power. And this power today we know because there's extensive studies on what form does power take in a society. But the Holy Quran refers to this already. And we're going to see the examples of it. Some people hold the power because they rule. So they have the political power. Some people have the power not necessarily because they rule, but because they have money and they have wealth. Or as today in the Marxist terminology, they, they'd say they control the means of production. Okay? Some people, they, they have the, the power or the symbolic power because they, have, they hold whatever that society considers sacred. So today, maybe that has become something different, but in previous times, you know, you had shamans, you had people who represented what religion is supposed to be. You had monks, you had magicians, you had those people who play the sacred role. You have people who carry the official knowledge of those nations. That's another type of power. Okay, there's a reason why I'm going through these. And you will see the Holy Quran has directly pointed to these. Today we think, you know, uh, extensive studies are being done on these notions of power. The Holy Quran referred to these directly, by name, one by one. Okay, so the moment you come and try to disrupt a society or question this, the first people who are going to oppose are the people who hold that power for different reasons, and we'll go through them and the factors, okay? There are ideological reasons and there are personal gain and collective gain. You're attacking something that becomes harmful to them. You're changing the system and it deprives them of something that they used to have. So, first of all, the Holy Quran explains to us that those people in themselves, once that message was communicated to them, once the Prophet or the Messenger comes with a, a message, they themselves reject that message for all the reasons that we mentioned. And we're going to go in them in detail in a second. But the second role they play is that not only do they reject and not only do they oppose, but they're going to influence others in society. And this is why they have a kind of a double responsibility. Not only are they disbelieving, disbelieving, but they're also influencing people and leading them directly or indirectly not to believe. And we're going to see how in a, in a second. So one way, as we said here, influence. Their influence, first of all, can be natural. Natural, what I mean is, they're, they're, it's a passive role. They're not trying to influence the people. But simply by being in a position of power, everybody is looking up to them. 
if those are the people who are going to reject the Prophet, they're going to reject the message, then a lot of people will follow them just because those are the people in power. Those are the people who are supposed to know. They're the people who are being exposed to it directly. Imagine, for instance, Fir'aun and those around him. And everybody is waiting to see, so how are the leaders going to deal with this? And this is how they dealt with it. So some people, lack of critical thinking and so on and so forth, they're going to follow that. So that's a natural influence. And then there is the persuasion. So they, they're actually going to try to convince the people that whatever this prophet or messenger is teaching or preaching is nonsense. It's not something that we should ever think of letting go our culture or belief or religion for. It's not worth it. It's not truth. Okay, so there's kind of a rational, logical arguments that are presented to make sure that people are convinced that this is not what they're supposed to be believing or following. So let's call that persuasion. And then there is coercion. So here they are going to use much stronger, more aggressive means. So it's not trying to convince you with logic and reason, don't follow this man, don't follow this person who's claiming to be a prophet. It's, if you follow them, I will punish you. I will torture you. I will kill you. I will exile you. I will push you out of the land. I will not allow you to live here. So depending on the context, depending on the nation, depending on how far we are in a story of a prophet, usually we're going to find all of this. We're going to see how the elites are going to influence their societies first in a very natural way because they're the deciders. They're the ones who are dealing with the, this claim of prophethood and message. And then they're going to try to slowly convince their people. And with time, they will take arms, they will force their people, they will torture their people, and they will even kill them if they have to. Or at least push them out of the land and uh, not allow them to live on this land anymore. So this is from the point of view of the elites. And we said the Holy Quran spends a lot of time on this point. The second reaction, and I think that obviously, logically, that what's remaining is there are people who believe. But in a lot of cases, it looks like the majority of the people, who, even those who believe, they don't believe right away. It's very rare for people to believe right away when someone comes with a message and says, here's a message from God and you have to obey me. So that's why I wrote, first of all, eventually, there are some people who believe. And usually, they are a minority. And in most cases, they remain a minority. Okay, so that's two. Three, generally speaking, the people who believe are not going to be the elites. They are going to be at the extreme opposite end of the elites. So they are the people who are the most depraved in, deprived in society. Not depraved. Deprived in society. Those are the people who are considered lowly, of lowly status, the people who have no money, no wealth, no power, no, you know, what, all the things that we consider to be the sources of power in a society. And why is that? And why is that? And we'll talk about that in a second. The very quick, easy, logical reason to that. And we'll talk about that in a second. We'll read the verse. And the reason is very simple. They are the ones that have the most to gain and the least to lose from the message of the prophets. When a prophet comes and says, I'm going to change the system, what, is the, what are they trying to do? They're trying to recreate a system that in this world creates social justice and social balance. 
So obviously, there's an abuse, there's a transgression that is being done on the part of the elites against those who are deprived. So the prophets are trying to reestablish justice by taking away what's not to the elites, what the elites have appropriated themselves of, and give it back and put it back in the hands of those who should get it. And so, of course, they can't wait to see that, that justice reestablished. Usually, though, at, the further you go along with the prophet, the more you see that it's not as simple. Whether you are of the lowly uh, status or, or lowly class in society or the elites, there's a lot at stake and you have to put in a lot and sacrifice a lot and be willing to handle a lot just by being with the prophet. But generally speaking, by the standards of this world, yes, you have more to gain and a lot less to lose if you have nothing to start with and you've been part of those minorities or sometimes majorities who have been abused by the elites. Okay, that's normal. That's the natural order of things. But we're going to talk about that in a second. So these points that we just mentioned, let's look at a few verses of the Quran that kind of give us the same message. And that's why I said for every point in this lesson, I'm trying to give you one or a couple of verses that are going to establish this from a Quranic point of view. As we said in the beginning of this series, we're going to try to add a, inject a dose of Quran more and more increasingly throughout the series until now we're reaching the end to prepare the ground for what's about to come. The explanation that we're giving, it's all still based on reason and based on historical analysis and so on and so forth. But here's the Quranic support for all of this. And of course, for each one of these verses, we can mention a whole lot of other verses that talk about the same topic. These are just samples. So in one verse, we are told, Has there not come to you the account of those who were before you, the people of Nuh, Ad, and Thamud, and those who were after them, whom no one knows well except Allah? Their messengers brought them manifest proofs, but they said, We disbelieve in what you have been sent with, Indeed, we have grave doubts concerning that to which you invite us. So here the point is we disbelieve in all those nations. And so the, obviously it's not limited to those nations. But what I'm saying, any nation you go back to, you'll say that the prophets come and the people reject. And they will say, you know, we disbelieve in what you have been sent with. And we have huge doubts about every component of what you're asking us to do. Okay, so that's a general verse. And another one. Then we sent our messengers in succession. Rusulana tetra, the Quran says, one after the other. We kept sending prophets, one after the other, messengers, one after the other. Whenever there came to a nation its messenger, they impugned. They impugned him. Impugn basically means you say they are a liar. Okay, the word doesn't work in English. To say that someone is a liar, it's to impugn. They do not believe, they reject, they oppose, but in short, they say you are a liar. So they impugn. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, we tried again and again and again. We sent one messenger after another. That's what's meant here. In succession, every time the messenger comes to their nation, the nation says, you are a liar. Okay, so this is a general point that we said. The prophets come with the teachings, with the messages, and they adopt whatever context they need to to convince their people. And the general reaction of the people is this. Okay, so these are general. Now let's go a little bit more specific. We did not send a warner to any town 
without its affluent ones, affluent are the people who have the luxuries, the people who have the wealth, the people who live in comfort, okay? Without its affluent ones saying, we indeed disbelief in what you have been sent with. So now we're going a little bit more specific. The first verses spoke about people in general. Now we're going to the elites. So now we see people who have affluence, which means they have wealth. They have means of comfort. They have a comfortable living. That's one. When their messengers brought them manifest proofs, they exulted in the knowledge they possessed. So they were happy. They were proud of the, mess the knowledge that they had. So that's, that's how they received the messengers and the prophets. The messenger, the prophet, comes to them and says, this is what God wants you to do. This is the correct set of belief. They say, no, no, we're happy with our knowledge. We're happy with our set of beliefs. Okay? That's why they said, when their messengers brought them manifest proofs, it should have been convincing, it should have been evident and clear. Their reaction was, they exalted, they, they, they were happy with the knowledge that they possessed. But they were besieged by what they used to deride. Which is, you know, they said there is no afterlife, there is no one God, we're gonna, and that's exactly what became the reason for their punishment, their besieging. So here we saw that knowledge suddenly becomes very important. Okay, that's one, another means. So the first one was wealth, and there's a lot of verses on that. And there's a reason why I, I spent a, a little bit more time about knowledge and a couple of other things here. Another one, and I don't have time to go through the entire story of Qarun, you go in Surah Al-Qasas, uh, before and after this verse, 78 in Surah Al-Qasas, uh, chapter 28, you'll see the story of Qarun, Qarun, who was with Prophet Musa, and who initially was with him, and then suddenly he turned, and he used the knowledge that he had against Prophet Musa, and where he ended. So when people started warning him, and telling him, you, what you have done is wrong, his answer, in short here, so part of, exactly, his answer, in short, he, he gave a number of reasons, but one of the main factors, he said, I have indeed been given all of this because of the knowledge that I have. I have this knowledge and I'm the one. He kept telling him, be careful how you're using all this wealth that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given you. And his response is, no, no, don't say Allah has given you. I have reached this wealth through my own work and through my own effort and through my own knowledge. Okay, that's a, a point. Another verse. When distress befalls the human, so now we're going very general. We saw specific examples. So all human beings, this is a nature of human beings. When distress befalls the human, he supplicates us. Then when we grant him a blessing from us, he says, I was given it by virtue of my knowledge. So when he is in his hour of need, at his lowest point, he's praying. And he recognizes his need. He recognizes that he is not independent. That he is fully relying on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. At that time, it's not, I'm capable. It's, I'm in need, please God help me. And the moment Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives him whatever he's asking for or takes him out of that situation, he starts feeling once again that he is self-sufficient. That he does not really need Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this here, and see how the verse ends. And it's very important. 
And I put two exclamation points at the end as a warning for all of us. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the verse says, he says, I was given it by virtue of my knowledge. Rather, it is a test. But most of them, most human beings, most of them do not know. And the reason I put this, I think, is I think today we live in a world where this is a, a dominant mentality. We are constantly bombarded with this message of work, and if you work hard, you know, you put in an amount of work, and if you do this, you will achieve X, Y, Z success. And so be proud of that success and show it to the world. And of course, they will sometimes even add. So if you're, you know, not in a religious context, not in an Islamic context, no problem. You, you can say or do whatever you want. But if you're preaching an, an Islamic message with this, there's a huge problem with it. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, if you understand how the Quran or how the Ruayat explain to us bala or ibtila, so testing and tribulation and challenges in this world, you see that it is not acceptable to think that because I have put in an amount of work, therefore I have earned and deserved and I have a right upon God to having received this wealth, this knowledge, whatever accomplishment it is. And then I want to go and boast and gloat and pride myself on what I have achieved. This is the world we live in today. It's all about individual accomplishment and success and achievements. And you advertise them and you show them and this shows your success in society. The truth is that if you understand how this world is structured, the truth is that two people may put in the same amount of energy and one of them is going to be reaching material success and the other is not. One of them will make $10 million with that and the other will make $5,000 with that. And the reason, the real reason is not because you were somehow smarter or better. Of course there are material causes. But all of this, the manner in which it unfolds, and what you end up receiving or not receiving is a test. That you are successful is a test, and that you are not successful is a test. And really, I hate to put it this way because that opens a, an objection that I don't have time to get into right now, that's a big topic. But really, really, you kind of had not much to do with what you received. You put in the premises, you put in some material causes in place, but the outcome is not within your hands. The outcome is in the hands of God. You can't come back and say, I have earned. You haven't earned anything. Allah subhanahu wa decided that here he's going to give you this success, and here he's going to put you to that test. And it's not because here you were smarter and here you weren't. It's because here the test looked this way, and there the test looked in that way. The problem is sometimes someone is going to object to this and say, well, therefore, you know, you just sit back and wait for the success to come. No, your job is to work. And that's why I'm saying I don't have time to get into the topic right now. But here, if you read verses like these ones carefully, you see this idea of self-reliance is rejected in religion. If you understand what we said when we talked about the oneness of God, and how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala controls the means of this world. And everything is a test. The good and the bad. The Holy Quran says, The test looks, or to us, it appears 
it's in the things that are beneficial to you and in the things that are harmful to you. Both of them are a test. You're not only tested in the difficulties, so that if you're not feeling a difficulty, or Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala hasn't tested me in three years. No, no, you're being tested every second. These benefits and this comfort and this luxury that you're feeling and you feel there's no test, is just because you're distracted. You're unaware that this is a test. And soon the test may change. And here the test looks like success, and there it looks like failure. But they're equal in the eyes of God. They're a test. Your job is to behave in the appropriate manner in every circumstance. And not say here, I'm successful, and this is as a result of my effort. And over there, oh, it's not my effort. Because it's, you know, if, if something bad, and, and some of the verses of the Quran says, they would come to the Prophet and say, when something bad befalls them, they blame the Prophet, they blame you. And when something good happens, they say, oh, this is from God. And the, the verse ends, Everything is from God. The good and the bad. It's just you're so obsessed with the material, you're so <coughs> focused and fixated on the material, you don't see what's behind it, which is it's all a test. And this is, I think, something that we all live and we all hear and we're all constantly in this. And it's not easy. And I think it's a lot harder today than it was, let's say, a hundred years ago or a thousand years ago. Because we live in a world that glorifies success. And in a lot of cases, it's not even real success. It's a very small, it's just the advertising, the advertising of it looks like it's a very big success. Okay, so even in the cases of true success, one has to be careful and remember where God is and how God gave it to you. And he can take it away. And both are the test. Don't stop gloating and being proud of your accomplishment and your success. And your, your job is to do as much as you can and to reach the best version of yourself and whatever you can accomplish in terms of success. That's your job. But the outcome, you don't control the outcome. Okay? Anyway, so that was a tangent of venting. The next verse, and they will say, our Lord, we obeyed our leaders and elders. And this is how we're now linking. So first verses we said there are elites. So some elites are elites of wealth and luxury and comfort. Some elites are elites of knowledge. And we saw examples of that. Now we're seeing how there are people who follow other people. You follow those elites. You follow those who have the power or the wealth or the knowledge. And this is the additional responsibility that those people have. This is the test, okay? And they will say, so those people who are going to hell on the, in the hereafter, on the day of judgment, they will say, our Lord, we obeyed our leaders and elders. And they led us astray from the way. So basically, you have to punish them, not us. We simply followed them as we were supposed to in that social, political, religious, whatever context. Okay, so now we're now at seeing the influence and how the rest of the people are following, or the sheeple are, are following. Another verse. Here we have two verses. But if you were to see when the wrongdoers are made to stop before their Lord. So this is more detailed. So we are now in the hereafter. And everybody's standing in front of God. And we have the wrongdoers. But there's two categories. There are the people who are the leaders and the people being led. And now they're going to disagree. They're going to fight amongst themselves, each one of them putting the blame on the other group. But if you were to see when the wrongdoers are made to stop before their Lord, casting the blame on one another. Those who were abased, pushed down in society, were abased, will say to those who are arrogant, to those who are superior, 
Had it not been for you, we would surely have been faithful. And those who are arrogant will respond, will say to those who are abased, Did we keep you from guidance after it had come to you? No, you were guilty yourselves. You saw the truth. You should have followed it. Why did you follow us? Why did you listen to us? You could have chosen a different path. And those who were abased will say to those who were arrogant, rather, it was your plotting by night and day when you ordered us to reject Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and to set up equals to him. They will hide the remorse when they cite the punishment. So here we see this interaction between those who are elites and the rest. And at the end, they're all going to end up in the same place. So this is not an excuse, but we see the additional responsibility on those who are in positions of power in society. And then here as a verse, I think that wraps it up. The elite of the faithless from among his people said, we do not see you to be anything but a human being like ourselves. And we do not see anyone following you except those who are lowly and simple-minded. <clears throat> so people who are very of low social status and they are simple-minded in society, nor do we see that you have any merit over us. Rather, we consider you to be liars. So this is where we see the interaction between the people and the Prophet and those who follow, who have accepted to follow the Prophet. And if you fast forward, so this is I think verse uh, maybe 30 or 27. If you fast forward to verse 40, when our command came, so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is talking about Prophet Nuh here, but obviously this applies to other Prophets who were told all, the same thing. They come to the Prophet and they told him, we, those who follow you, why would we ever follow someone like you? There's nothing special about you. And look at the people who are around you. They are only of those who form the low class, people who don't have our respect. None of us, the elites, the powerful, the wealthy, the knowledgeable, the sacred, none of us are following you. Okay, so this, this should say something. And I, I skipped over it because we don't have time to go over all the verses that are really worth going back to. Okay, as other prophets did the same thing and they responded and they said, what do you want me to do? To push back those who have believed in me just because they are poor or just because they, you do not respect them? That would not be befitting. That would not be okay. And this is where the prophets are fighting the social cultural conventions of their time. When our command came and the oven gushed, so this is when the precursor signs to the flood, the time of Prophet Nuh we said carry in it, so carry in the in the ark, carry in it a pair of every kind of animal along with your family, except those of them against whom the edict or the command has already been given, and those who have faith and none believed with him except a few. So all the points that we talked about, I think are we find a lot of them here. We see who who agreed and who did not agree with this belief, and we see that at the end, after all those years. At face value, the Qur'an is saying, you know, 1,000 minus 50 years that Prophet Nuh remained in his people preaching. He preached for 950 years. When would you lose your patience? After how long would you lose your patience? And he remained in his people preaching for 950 years. And at the end, the outcome was, and none believed in him except a few. So basically, none believed in him. That, that's how you have to see it. The end result of his entire mission of all the effort he put in and this is to bring back to the notion that if I put in the effort I'm going to earn the reward 
Well, if this is how Prophet Nuh thought about it, he would never have continued with his mission. That's, that's how the verse is said. And none believed in him, except a few. There's a few of them who believed. So the exception are the ones who believe, not the rule. The general rule is, you know, if this is how you want to calculate failure and success, material, and count how many people believed, it would look like it's a failure. But this is not the criteria. Okay? In any case. And none believed with him except a few. So now let's go to the reaction of the people. Generally speaking, we said that the teachings of the prophets are coming in two categories. There's a set of beliefs and a set of actions. And actions can be even split in two because we have a moral code and value system and we also have a code of law. Okay? The Sharia. Generally speaking, if we look at societies in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has sent prophets, it's very rare that we find societies where the entire message of a prophet was actually accepted by his people. Very, very rare. Some indications when we read the Holy Quran, it looks like Prophet Sulaiman had that in his time. And that's why he was able to build an empire, to build a kingdom. It means that he was able to have enough people in his time who accepted the belief system, who accepted the actions that go with that belief system, and he can get them far enough in the rest of the domains of life to actually be able to build a kingdom. Yeah. And Sayyid Abshir, you would agree, him being wealthy, it's not a coincidence that he was the one that was able to garner the largest following. Mm -hmm. And so that's, these are like the material, the context, let's say. The context will change from one prophet to another. And we'll talk about that in a second. It definitely helps. But I would argue that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will create the conditions that should help in every case. Because that wasn't the case with Prophet Muhammad. He was not in certain contexts and he was in others. He had money in some and he did not in others. And that's why... You know, based on everything we look at, this is where we see the greatness of the Holy Prophet and what he was able to do in a 23, 20, really 20 years, 23 years, let's say, to be more official, okay, 23 years of, of da'wah, of preaching, what he was able to accomplish, how far he was able to take those people. Of course, there are conditions in place. A lot of them not, had nothing to do with the Prophet himself. And this is what every prophet has to work with. It's like a, let's call it a divine plan or a divine engineering of society. That he makes that prophet be born at a certain point in time. And in a certain location from a certain family or tribe. And he has to deal with that context. He didn't determine what these people are starting with as a set of beliefs, for instance. But that's what he has to work with. And he has to use his genius and his knowledge of these people and, and, and. And of course with divine intervention and with divine guidance to do the right thing. One factor obviously is wealth, but that's not the only one. And that one could be used against him or not. So there are things that it's difficult to put the, the blame or the success or the failure on the prophets themselves. Okay, let, let, let me put it that way. Okay, so it's a set of conditions they're working with. In some cases it's going to lead to people accepting and in others they're going to reject. So that's, that's part of it. Yeah, and we talked about that in, in previous lessons too, that it helps to know the, you know, the, the, 
preconditions before becoming the messenger. Before be what what was his seal? What was his biography? What were what was the heritage and the knowledge and the biography that the people knew of him before he starts? Okay, and that becomes one of the reasons why they believe or not don't believe. In any case. So as we said, accepting the full message of prophets, very rarely is it ever accepted fully. In part, in the majority of cases, it's always in part. And this is where we say, it's difficult just to say the entire message of a prophet is rejected. In fact, with time, and if someone is able to go and dig and you have enough evidence to work with, you'll see that there is a partial acceptance. The problem is they may not accept the things that really matter. What he wants them to accept is a belief system, but they may benefit from that prophet in other dimensions. And that makes its way through that people, his people that he's preaching to, and eventually to other peoples, to other nations. And you'll see historic, you know, uh, uh, development and growth and evolution of certain things that really came from prophets. Okay, so this is a partial. All sorts of things, you know, some of our scholars say, in fact, everything that today we find good in humanity, its source was a relation. Its source was a prophet who somewhere put in place the seeds, the architecture, something that set humanity on that path. Okay, so that's a general, you know, uh, idea. And I'm going to mention a couple of things here. So, for instance, today, I think it would not be very far-fetched. It could be, I'm not going to say easily, but, you know, moderately well documented and shown that the constitutions and the systems of law and legal philosophy, if you see that the sources of law in the world, you can trace back all of their principles to Revelation, to the Old Testament, to the New Testament, to some sort of religious background, which obviously came from a prophet. These are the legal systems of the world today. Of course, people will not say that. They'll present them as being secular systems. But the rights that we understand in today's societies, their sources are, are in religion. They're all religious sources. Okay? And we can add things about medicine. We can add things about technology. We have a lot of narrations that, for instance, say that astronomy was an entire field that was revealed to some prophets who taught people. Okay? Or, for instance, that how we taught uh, Dawood, alayhi salam, sewing and how to build shields so that when you go to war, you can actually defend yourself and protect yourself. Or, or, or. So this is if you go into industry and technology and medicine, there are, uh, you know, the, 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 not the argument, but the discussion that Imam Salih had with, you know, this Indian uh, physician who came and the Imam goes back and forth with him. He tells him, how do you figure that people, human beings, discovered how herbs are to be used as medicine? And he said, well, they just went and trial and error, and they learned that way. The Imam tells them if they had really done it that way, first of all, there's not enough time. How many herbs are you going to try before you discover? And how are you going to relate it to this specific disease or that one? How do you know which one is affecting what? And why, how many people would you have killed before you reach a, the right one to know how this one worked? It's because some of them are poisons, and some of them are beneficial, and some of them are harmful. So obviously the source of this is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala who taught human beings through prophets how to use herbs as medicine. If you go back in Kitab al-Ihtijaj and elsewhere, you see a lot of this from 
Allah Sadiq and Abu Bakr السلام, at the time of Zanadiq and the atheists. Anyway, so today I think that's why I'm saying in a lot of cases someone who really wants to dig into this, the difficulty that you'll find is that the real sources are missing. So you have to dig through and see potentially where something may have originated in Revelation. When in history? How? In what form? And how would, did that become the seed that today serves humanity in the beneficial way it does today? In any case. And these are two quick quotes that I have related to this general topic that I think, you know, if someone doesn't know, they may find them surprising. These are two people who are experts in, in the fields of the philosophy of science, and, and the second one is a huge scientist himself. Let me start with the first one. He says, between theism and mechanistic philosophy, so theism is belief in God and the world all based on God, to the mechanistic philosophy that we find at the time right after the medieval ages and the Renaissance when people are starting to really understand the scientific method and the mechanistic philosophy, the idea that God designed, designed the universe by way of mathematical laws became the norm. So the reason why you have people like Kepler and Newton and others starting to build these types of systems is because of their belief in God. But that belief generates a mathematical system for the world. Because you believe that there is a God who is a designer, who is wise, who is powerful, who creates in a certain way and who doesn't create in another way. He doesn't create randomly. Someone like Einstein will say, he doesn't play dice with the world. Right? So they have, because you believe in that, you're able to create what we, today we call science. Okay, so he says those were the principles in Newton's Principia, which changed the course of science. He put everything is based on a mathematical foundation. That's his Principia. The uniformity of those laws, Newton argued, is due to God's omnipresence. That they do not change over time, said Descartes, is because of God's immutability, because God does not change. So his laws do not change. I'm not saying these are valid or not valid. We're showing that the origin of the foundations of science today is really because people believed in God that they were able to even conceive, imagine creating this type of system. The simplicity of the laws was used as an argument for God's existence. As for mathematical elegance, Kepler believed that God has established nothing without geometrical beauty. So Kepler is the one who came up with the equations to calculate the orbits of the planets, the moon of the planets. Okay, so this is where they're coming from. And if you trace that back, you see it's difficult to say if you believe in God, therefore not no science. The truth is historically this is not how things worked out. The people who came up with this were the people who believed the most in God. Okay? And this is another quote, the notions of the constancy of the quantity of matter, of the constancy of the quantity of motion, which today are the main principles on which all of science is built, right? Nothing is created, nothing is destroyed, everything is transformed. Energy equals mass, right? So nothing is lost. All of this, the indestructibility of work or energy, conceptions which completely dominate modern physics, all arose under the influence of theological ideas. And this is Ernst Mach. Okay, so huge scientist and philosopher of science. Okay, so the factors leading to the opposition. Why do people oppose the prophets? Very quickly. First of all, there's the general opposition. 
The prophets are coming with a system, with a set of beliefs, with a set of teachings that are going to impose restrictions on you. You want to live in a certain way, and now we are putting barriers. You want to do this, you desire that, you have this pleasure, and here are restrictions. You can't worship whatever you want, you can't do whatever you want, you can't kill or take or give or eat or, 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 whatever you want. There are restrictions, there's a code. So that's a general reason why people in general are going to object. Reason one. Second reason. Second reason is more psychological. I'm the one who has power. Who are you to tell me what to do? Who do you think you are coming with a new system? So it must be that you're trying to replace me as the king, as the ruler, as a powerful person, as the elite, and so on and so forth. And there are many verses in the Quran that where they tell them explicitly, okay, or things like that. He's trying to replace your religion with his own so that he, you know, and that's why the prophets keep saying, I'm not doing this for any reward. I'm not trying to get to any material gain from any of this. So you have arrogance, pride and conceit, and, and the Quran says that this is someone who is too proud to recognize that they have made a mistake. Okay, so this is the pride or conceit here. The Quran refers to this and says someone who has done it, who has done a transgression or a sin or a wrong, but he has too much izza, he has too much pride and conceit, now he shows his pride. He says, no, I will not be embarrassed in this manner and, and openly admit that I have made a mistake here. Okay, so that's this, another way to look at it. Or simply this, you know, complex of superiority. Okay, a third category is, as we said earlier, the people who are in certain positions are going to lose their distinctions. They're going to lose their benefits. They're going to lose a personal gain that they currently have. If you are Abu Sufyan, and you live on, you know, trading, uh, you know, prostitution and enslaving women for that kind of work, then of course accepting Islam is going to harm your business. Right? Okay, so very clear. Culture, ideology, and tradition. So this is when people keep saying, whatever you're teaching me, whatever you're telling me to do, goes against our tradition. Goes against what I learned from my forefathers. Goes against what our society has been built on. How dare you remove anything of those things which we consider sacred. Uh, another category, generally speaking, ignorance. People who refuse to use their mind and who refuse to learn. So lack of critical thinking and lack of knowledge makes people follow blindly and just be following through emotion and falling very easily in all of those traps. So yes, maybe there are elites and there are people more powerful than you in society who may be pushing you one direction or another. But if you knew how to use your critical mind, if you knew how to access the information yourself, you would not so easily be duped and tricked and then you come here saying, I only followed the leaders and did whatever they said to do. Okay, and then finally, there is a social and psychological pressure. So example, it's not easy for me to let go of everything and want to join this person who's saying I'm a prophet. When I look at him, you know, I'm living in comfort and luxury. Or even, let's say I'm neutral, I'm average. But I look on this side, there are people opposing that prophet. And this is lessons for us. I look on this side and I see this prophet. He is living, he wears rags. He seems poor. Those around him are poor. Everybody is fighting him. 
he's not really accomplishing or being very successful and there's not much you know material gain that comes from just joining that group and on the other side it looks like the, all the material means all the material success and uh, you know wealth and comfort and recognition and reputation and so on it's all on the other side if you look at the, the state of the Holy Prophet and the people with him in Sharab uh, Abi Talib for instance the three years of famine and, and deprivation that they lived there they have absolutely nothing versus how Quraysh were living at that time they were preventing the Muslims from doing any transactions they're not allowed to sell to them buy from them marry them anything so you look at the condition of these people and then you look at the condition of those. Well, these are social, psychological reasons for not wanting to join. Even if you want to, you say, okay, well, it's the truth, but the social conditions and the material conditions are so difficult that you, they push you back, okay? So you have to be strong to actually overcome all of that and say, I will still go because I know that's the truth, okay? And then there's the pressures from the elites that are more direct, which is, I will go, and it's okay. I will live in, in you know, in in uh, poverty, and I will endure. But it's something else to say. I'm willing to put my life on the line, or I'm willing to put the life of my family on the line, right? And this is where the pressure changes. If you go, we'll kill you. If we go, you are exiled. You're no longer allowed to live in this land. That's it. Your life is over. This is where you have a very serious choice to make. Okay. So here are some verses in the Qur'an that talk about all of these points and we'll go through them quickly. Whenever a messenger brought them that which was not to their liking, so this is a personal desire, they would impugn, so they would say this is a lie, they would impugn a part of them, so some of the prophets, they were simply told you're just a liar, we'll never believe in you, leave, and part and apart they would slay. And some of the prophets, they would simply kill them. Okay, and this is to a point that we'll come back to and we've already mentioned, the means, how were they fighting the prophets? Well, they, it went as far as simply killing the prophets. And we have in some narrations that in the thousands, prophets were killed in history. In the thousands. Okay, so the Quran reestablishes, reconfirms this. A lot of the prophets were killed. Indeed, those who dispute the signs of Allah without any authority that may have come to them, so they're not using their reason, they're not using logic, they're not using any valid argument to dispute the prophets, there is only greatness or vanity in fi sudurihim illa kibrun, the Quran says. So kibr can be translated in different ways. They have this a complex within themselves, the Quran says, you know, it's translated here as a greatness or a vanity or a pride. It's a complex inside them that they will never able to reach. They will never be able to reach it or to fulfill it. It's a need, it's a lack in them that makes them never accept the truth, even if they see it right in front of them, okay? So it's a, almost like, let's say it's a psychological problem that they created for themselves. I will never bow down to this. I am too great. It's out of arrogance, okay? They will never be able to, no matter how much arrogance they will display in this world, it will never be enough for them. They will need more arrogance and more vanity and pride. And that makes them never accept the truth. So we're talking about the means, right? The, the factors why you disbelieve. So this is one. And so it has been that we did not send any warner to a town before you without its affluent ones, those who have the means of comfort, say, we found our forefathers following a creed 
and we are indeed following in their footsteps. And so here it's neutral. This is what they say. And so blindly following whatever was there before them. Next verse, they said, have you come to us to turn us away from what we found our fathers following? How dare you ask us to change something that was already in place? And when they are told, come to what Allah has sent down and come to the messenger, so now this is a time of the Holy Prophet, they say, sufficient for us is what we found our forefathers following. What, even if their forefathers did not know anything and were without guidance, they will still say that? And the truth is, yes, they do. So the Quran is basically saying, and they were without any knowledge, and they were misguided or without any guidance. So they are blindly saying, so the Quran is repeatedly <coughs> reminding them, that is only a valid argument if your forefathers carried a knowledge or they were guided. But in itself, it's not an argument just because your parents or your forefathers or your ancestors did, you do. That's not a, a, a criteria. O believers, indeed many of the scribes and monks, so now we're going to the elites. See the elites, the people who have the power in society. These are the people who hold the sacred positions in society. The scribes and the monks wrongfully eat up the people's wealth and bar them from the way of Allah through money, for money. Those who treasure up gold and silver and do not spend it in the way of Allah inform them of a painful punishment. So here's where you know you link it to the money, the sacredness of those positions. You lose social status, you lose personal gain. Main natural reasons why you would object to the truth. The manners in which the truth was objected to, the manners in which people oppose. Mockery and ridicule. So the prophet comes, they tell themselves, and they always start with this, they underestimate the Prophet. They say, oh, this is nothing. This person is nothing. It's not worth even bothering with. This is a very small issue. This is a very small thing. We'll deal with it and we'll get over with it. Okay, that's how it starts. And so in this sense, they mock and they ridicule. From there, they see that this Prophet is not going away. And in fact, he's starting to gain followers and starting to become more and more influential in society. So they start creating up lies, fabricating things that distort the reputation of that prophet in society so that people leave them alone. So they will say, crazy, they will say, he's a magician, they will say, he's bringing folk tales from the past, whatever it is. Ruin the reputation of the person. Create whatever you need to create to destroy the reputation of the person. The problem is that in the case of the prophets, the people knew them before they were prophets. So it's not easy for people to just come and say, oh, you lost your mind. Everybody knows that this person's mind is extremely strong. It works everywhere else. This is the only place that doesn't work anymore. Or this person was trustworthy. Suddenly he's a liar. Suddenly he can't be trusted. So that argument does only reaches so far. Then they start to reason with the person. And this is where they are exposed very quickly because the prophets are going to use proper logic with them. If you go to the story of Ibrahim السلام, or you go to the story of many of the prophets, you see the people, if they openly start to want to have an engagement, a discussion, a dialogue with them, then very quickly they'll see, well, they sound foolish. When Ibrahim السلام, uh, was brought back and he told them, well, ask the big idol, they were all destroyed, they were all to pieces, 
except the big ones that will ask them, the Quran says they went back and realized. For a moment there, they realized the foolishness of what they were saying. He told them, how can you worship something that does not hear you or does not see you? When I told you that the big idol is the one who destroyed them, you answered right away saying, well, you know, don't be foolish. What do you mean the big idol did it? So I go, okay, well, how can you worship them? So the Quran says, Right away they realize, and this is where they expose themselves. The logic is too impeccable, so they have to fall into very foolish reasoning. They start coming up with all sorts of stuff that anyone who reads says, really, is that the best they could come up with? In fact, yeah, it was. Okay, because their logic is very strong on the other side. So, foolish arguing and faulty reasoning. Then they move to, okay, we try to talk to them, we tried to reason with them, it didn't work. We tried to ridicule them and ruin reputation, it didn't work. What do we do? We try to bribe them. They tried to do it with the Holy Prophet. They did it with all the other prophets. We'll give you whatever you want, just leave us alone. Okay. Or they tried to bribe the people with him. The people now following. What do you want? You want this? Or, on the other side, threats. If you stay with this person, this is what we're going to do to you. We're going to prevent you from this. We're going to prevent you from that. We're going to punish you. We're going to torture you. We're going to kill you. And finally, if it doesn't work, well, the empty threats are put aside, and now they actually do. So they do the bribery, and some people will be lost with that, and some people will stay, and they will do the threats. They will execute as they said, and some people will stick, and some people will, will leave. Okay, so these are the general means and some of the verses in the Quran that talk about each one of them. See the categories of the means. Alas, how regrettable. This is Hasratan uh, al-Ibad in Surat Yasin. Alas, how regrettable of the servants. There does not come to them any messenger, but they, they mock or deride him. To the elite of his people who are faithless, the elite of his people who are faithless said, indeed, we see you to be an imbecile, an imbecile, or being foolish. And indeed, we consider you to be a liar. In other verses, so see when this is attacking the reputation. Here they attacked his sanity. He's lost his sanity. Another verse, he is just a man possessed by madness. It's crazy. So bear with him for a while, basically, which means until he dies. He'll soon die, you know, so he's gone mad. So people, you know, just, just so that you all know, this person, he used to be good and respectable, and but now he's lost his mind. So just be a little patient. He's going to keep saying whatever he's saying until he dies, and then we go back to, inshallah, once we have a chance to go through the, the stories of the prophets of the Quran, we'll go through these in, in detail. So it was that there did not come to those who were before them any apostle or any messenger, but they said a magician or a crazy man. Okay, so this is where we see the, the, type, the type of logic and the type of reasoning. When they come to you, they dispute with you. And the faithless say, these are nothing but myths of the ancients. There's no argument. So they say, are you just finding this in the myths of the ancients? And you're repeating them. Every nation attempted to lay hands on their messenger and disputed erroneously to refute the truth. And this is important. And they disputed erroneously. The Quran says their arguments were not valid. They did not even take the time to come up with valid arguments with our prophets. Have you not regarded him who defies our signs and says, I will surely be given wealth and children? 
And here we see, we see that they use that as a factor. If I still have wealth, if I still have power, and in the case of these, you know, the this is a time of the, the Holy Prophet where it was very important to have male sons and to have money. That's what distinguishes you and gives you a distinction. And they say, well, if he has, he must be on the truth. And this Prophet must not be telling the truth. Otherwise, why would God give all of this material gain to this person? Okay? So this is the foolishness of the, of the arguments. What kept the people from believing when guidance came to them was their saying, has Allah sent a human as a messenger? So, we don't want to believe because you're a simple human being just like us. If God wants, we want to see signs. We want Him to talk to us directly. We want to see, transform this whole desert into a garden. And we want the book to come down to you directly so that you, you know, and, and so on and so forth. We want an angel to talk to us. Why is He sending just a mere human being like us? To those who have known, uh, those who have no knowledge, say, why does Allah speak? Why does not Allah speak to us or come to us a sign? So said those who were before them, words similar to what they say. Alike are their hearts. We have certainly made the signs clear for people who have certainty. But the faithless said to their messengers, "Surely we will expel you from our land." See, first there was arguments. They tried to distort the reputation. They're crazy. They're madmen. They're magician. They tried to use false argumentation. Now it's going to become what? Threats. The faithless said to the messengers, surely we will expel you from the land or you should revert to our creed. You come back to our religion or we'll kick you out or those who follow you. And Pharaoh said to the people around him, to the Melech, he told them, let me slay Musa. Let me slay Musa and let him invoke his Lord. So we have both here. It's a threat and it's an argument. If he's truly a messenger, let him pray to God that he saves him from my slaying. Okay? And then, that is because they would defy the signs of Allah and kill the prophets unjustly. This is where we said, this is the last, the last straw. They no longer know what to do with these prophets. They don't know how to handle them. They simply kill them. So that's one verse. Another verse, those who defy Allah's signs and kill the prophets unjustly and kill those who call for justice among the people inform them of a painful punishment. Last topic of this lesson. From all of this, the divine trends. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent the people, sent all of these nations, all of these people, the prophets to guide them. He added more. There's more incentive. Initially when we talked about this, we gave a number of reasons. Why are prophets being sent? And in large part, we said because the human mind is deficient, it may never reach certain truths, it has no means to reach those truths. Maybe other truths it can reach, but with a lot of time and a lot of trial and error that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and His wisdom does not want. So He gave human beings prophets who are also role models to be followed and so on and so forth. Guidance for this world and the next. Some people, this is not enough for them. So what does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala do? He adds incentives. He adds reminders. He adds things that should encourage you to wake up. To see that this person is really sent from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He's really a messenger. He's really a prophet like he claims. So what does he do? He starts testing those nations. To bring them back. If you read for instance the, uh, the time of Fir'aun with Musa alayhi salam. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala started sending them tribulations and tests. فَأَرْسَلْنَا عَلَيْهِمْ وَالْجَرَادَ وَالْقُمَّلَ وَالْضَفَادَ 
right? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, I started testing them. I sent one test after another. Maybe they're going to wake up. Maybe Pharaoh is going to see. The, the calamity does not come right away. The punishment, the final punishment does not come right away. There's a chance and then there's another chance. You should wake up here. Maybe that was not enough. Here's another one, a little bit more, a little bit more. Okay, so this is where we see it is still part of the big plan. It is still part of trying to get people to be guided. First, here's the truth in a neutral manner. It's not working. I'm going to put things in place that should wake you up and bring you back to this. Still not working. I'm going to add more incentives. Still not working. Then, in some cases, it works. But it works momentarily. That's why I have a utilitarian belief. Utilitarian as in, so long as it's benefiting me. Right now, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tests me with something. So they would come to Musa alayhi Please Musa, whatever you want, tell us, just pray to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to remove this test, to remove this problem. We can't live anymore. All the water turned into blood and we can't drink anymore. We're all going to die. Please pray for us. He says, but this is a reminder. If I pray for you, it means you've accepted my message. You've accepted that I'm a prophet sent from God. They say, of course, of course. said, okay. So he prays. And the test is lifted. And they go back right away to their disbelief. And not only do they go back to their disbelief, they start working even faster and harder against him in the Quran, which we don't have time to go through. And that's why even, even Pharaoh, and the, and the verses you see, when he's drowning, he, he goes back to this. He finally, at the moment when you would think, okay, that's over, he drowned. Well, he's drowning, he's not drowned yet. And he says, He says, I have believed in whatever Bani Israel have believed in. Just get me out of here. Don't let me drown, Musa. Whatever they've believed in, your people who followed you, Bani Israel, whatever they believed in, I believed in it. He doesn't say Amen to Billah. He doesn't say I have believed in God. I have believed in whatever they believed in. Just rescue me. Get me out of here. But if you wanted to believe, you would have believed before. Once again, you've proved all along that you're not really believing. It's a utilitarian belief. You're going to say whatever you need to say, but it's not really belief. Okay? When logic, reasoning, advice no longer work. So all of this, this is a trend. This is how the author is presenting this, as saying this is a trend. People are not sent a calamity right away that destroys them. These people were not destroyed right away. There is a progression. There are chances being given again and again and again. And at the end, we tried with logic, we tried with incentives, we tried with advice. Nothing is working. So it becomes an open confrontation with God. Basically, that's what it is. You are confronting God directly and saying, if you exist, Bring down your punishment, which is exactly what they said. In the Quran, there are a number of verses that say, you know, whatever you've been promising us, send it. Open confrontation with God. And here, the, the result comes in two versions. The outcome comes in two versions. In one version, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not punish directly. Why? Because the Prophet and those who are with the Prophet have become numerous enough, have become strong enough to be able to handle themselves and to keep their religion. So what does God say? He orders them to defend themselves. And he tells them, go defend your faith, go defend your belief, go fight with that. 
disbelievers yourself. I'm not going to send a calamity. My punishment, I'm going to make them taste my punishment on your hands. Okay? This is when a prophet has become strong enough and has enough followers and has enough power to be able to actually withstand. In other cases, when they, he does not reach that type of power, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells the Prophet, leave them, stay away from those people, leave that land, and leave it to me. And I'm going to intervene directly. We've given them every chance, and if they remain, those people are going to destroy whatever chance faith has, religion has, to remain in existence. If we leave them, if we let them be. So I'm going to send my own punishment. So the verses in the Quran that go with this, had we destroyed them with a punishment before it, they would have surely said, our Lord, why did you not send us a messenger so that we might follow your signs? So basically, here's where the trend is. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala first establishes the evidence, gives the proof so that there's no excuse. This is the hujjah. Right? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, and I have always the upper argument, the final argument. There's no excuse. You can't come back and say, you didn't show me, you didn't tell me, I did not know. So, yes. Sayyid, I know you're uh, almost done. Yeah. But I, I just have to ask this question and I have to leave. So I have to wait till nine. I was hoping to yeah. wait till you finish and ask. So, could you please forgive me? I have to, it's one question, uh, Sayyid. And it's related to this earlier and even now. Um, uh, a lot of uh, an argument I always hear when it comes that comes from atheists when you bring up the point of agreement when it comes to certain virtues that are shared across times and across cultures and across religions, like cowardice in comparison to bravery, generosity in comparison to stinginess. There's unison and complete agreement on these from any time. In any place, the argument that I will hear back to that is, well, this is also through natural selection. Mm -hmm. Those virtues have are in agreement across the board mm -hmm. because they're the ben to the benefit of the human race. Yeah. So the same way we don't we we've learned not to touch fire because it'll bring our end. Uh, we've also learned to be generous or to be wise because it promotes our existence. Mm -hmm. I'm just curious, how, how would you... Um... So first of all, this is a very new argument. It was like, it uses evolutionary theory for that. Yeah, before it was biological, but now yeah. it's even moral. Yes. The second thing is, there's a disagreement about this. Even them, as biologists and you know philosophers of science, they do not disagree that this is to the benefit of. Their, their biggest issue is, where does it come from? Where did the trait come from in the first place yeah, we've to be selected? No, no. <laughs> this, this the, we've come to learn that. Yeah, but that's not true. Over that quality yeah. is bad or good. So some of them, you can like, if, if that's what we're going to rely on, then some of them show that it's not actually beneficial. Like so, self-sacrifice? So some, you can show that it's beneficial in certain conditions, in certain situations, but not enough to say, and this has become a universal. It's not that universal as a benefit okay. so you can't you have to say where did it come from and why did it stay and natural selection they do not agree today that this is where it comes from that's one two 
And this is this goes back to the moral argument. Okay, so if you go back to the moral argument, you'll see the seeds of this entire thing. Those who say the presence of good itself in the world is enough to show that there is a God because it has to have come from somewhere. Okay, like Kant and others. The I lost my train of thought. Okay, so we're so saying that the good, from... yeah, the, so, and there is disagreement. So first of all, we have to go back to the, it's not enough to say this is what ended up being selected through natural selection. Mm. I want to understand its origin first. Two, there's disagreement between them. Three, today, even the notion of belief, they're trying to create a materialistic foundation for it, mm. and they're saying there are genes that make people believe in certain things, such as religion and God and the sacred and all mm. of that. So they've identified specific genes that are related to that. That is still goes back to the same problem. So now we're going directly to religion. At least you were talking about morality. Mm. Beyond morality, let's go to belief in God. Belief in religion. So they want to say it comes from a genetic foundation. Yeah. Even that is, why is it? So scholars of religion have used that to say, well, who put it there? Mm -hmm. There are scholars who are believers in God who use that argument to say it was God who created. This is the fitrah. And there's no more proof to say, no, this was a material evolution, mm -hmm. as to say, this is how we are hardwired. Allah subhanahu wa has hardwired us in a way to go back to Him. So say He put it in our genes to believe. And everybody says, every scholar who has studied religion and human beings and comparative religion, you know, as Karen Armstrong and others, they, they spend a lot of time on this. And there's one thing that's constant in human beings is belief. It's religion. Religion in what? That's a, a different discussion. But belief in and sacred in what we call religion. Where did that come from? Just saying it's part of our genetics is not enough. So I need an origin for that. Just so I understand correctly, what you're saying is even when it comes to evolution, yeah, physical, biological evolution, and now even when it comes to like this, this moral selection of evolution, yeah, even if that is true, who's to say that God also ordained it to be this way? So we're in agreement we that there's no physical uh, evolution, there's moral evolution, and that God no, that's has more... designed it to be this way. So in fact, that it's a proof that God exists. exists. It's so more can... proof on my side, not yours, oh, okay. as a believer. So you would, you would agree with this argument? <coughs> if if you can show it to me, I'll say more proof for me. I agree power. with it, but yes. it doesn't prove your point. It actually proves my exactly. point. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So you have to forgive me. Absolutely. Okay, so to go back to the verses, now we're going through through the verses that we're talking about the divine trends. Had we destroyed them with a punishment before sending, before it, before sending a messenger or a prophet to them, they would have surely said, Our Lord, why did you not send us a messenger so that we might follow your signs before we were abased and disgraced? So that's what. So that's a trend. It starts with setting the proof, making it clear and evident. So Allah starts with that. Indeed, the human being transgresses all bounds when he considers himself self-sufficient. So this is the, the moment he feels he's in need, he relies on, he needs to 
pray to God, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and say, please save me. I need you. I don't know what to do. And the moment he feels he's self-sufficient, as soon as he feels self-sufficient, he transgresses. We have certainly sent messengers to nations before you. Then we seize them with stress and distress. Why? So this is not the punishment. Allah is not saying, I seize them with, in Arabic it says, So we made things easy, we made things difficult. Okay? We, we tested them and we sent them all of these difficult conditions and situations that we put them in. Why? To serve as a reminder, to wake them up that this is truly a messenger being sent to you. So with stress and distress so that they, may, they might humbly entreat us, come back to us in humility. Come back, يَتَمَرَّعُونَ the Quran says. So that you come back in humility to God and ask for God to help you, which means you recognize He exists and that this is a messenger. Why did they not entreat or learn humility when our punishment overtook them? But their hearts had hardened and Satan had made to seem alluring to them what they had been doing. And here's the one of the Quran says it doesn't always work. Even those incentives, they may work for some people, but others, their hearts have become too hard. So it doesn't work for them. Right? As for those who deny our signs, we will draw them imperceptibly into ruin. Hence, they do not know. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, we're going to keep giving them. We're going to give them good. And imperceptibly, without them realizing what's happening, we're actually leading them to more ruin. Both sides are a test. And both sides should make them wake up that this is a prophet and the message is true. But they don't know. Let the faithless not suppose that the respite that we grant them is good for their souls. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says they should not think that, that if we give them time and we give them more graces and we give them more benefits, that this is good for them. We give them respite only that they may increase in sin. And there is a humiliating punishment for them. So we seize each of the nations for their sin. This is why you see the difference in the punishment. Okay? Among them were those upon whom we unleashed a rain of stones. And among them were those who were seized by the cry. And among them were those whom we caused the earth to swallow. And among them were those whom we drowned. It is not Allah who wronged them, but it was they who used to wrong themselves. They kept going in that direction. And in each of these cases, it was a hopeless case. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave them every opportunity and at the end it became an open confrontation with God. Whatever you have, bring it. But when a warner came to them, it only increased them in aversion. Acting arrogantly in the land and devising evil schemes and evil schemes beset only their authors. So do they await? See, that the point here is all about the trends. You see the trends in the verses, they're, they're they're there, but they're not, you know, being presented. But you see, acting arrogantly in the land, istikbaran fil ard wa illa Acting arrogantly in the land and devising. So this is Allah. La illa That evil schemes only at the end are always going to come back 
to haunt and to hurt and to harm their authors, that's Allah. So this is an example of Allah. That's why the verse continues, so do they await anything except the precedent of the ancients? So whatever happened is a precedent. In, in legal terminology, you see a precedent, something similar that has happened. Sunnata. Is that what they're waiting for? Yet you will never find any change in Allah's precedent and you will never find any revision in Allah's precedent. And I believe that's the end of the lesson. Um, if I can take two minutes and quickly answer the three uh, questions. Uh, can we just... Uh, sure, yes. Wa sallallahu ala Sayyidina Muhammadin wa ala ala al